listening to Treasuring Scripture, a podcast of the weekly teaching ministry of Lebanon Baptist Church, Roswell, Georgia. To learn more about our ministry, please visit us at LebanonBaptist.org. Last week, we as a church were reminded of the great task that Jesus, our Lord, laid out for us. And that is to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God. And right at the outset of our service, we got to see how one of our members, he and his wife, have taken the gospel to the ends of the world. And and one of the most needy places right now is in the area of Utah. And to see how God is using him to bring the gospel to that needy area. And so it's exciting to see how God is using our church in order to accomplish this. Of course, Jesus is the only way. Neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name given among men whereby people can be saved. It's only through Jesus. And so last week, we were reminded of that mission, the mission of our church. And as a result, at the end of the service, I issued what I called is a code blue. A code blue is when, let's say, someone is lacking oxygen and all hands on deck come and help rescue this person. Well, we issued a code blue in Atlanta because this city, without the message of Jesus, is going to a Christless eternity. And one of the things that I would like for our church to pray for and work toward, as I mentioned at the end of the service, is that we as a church would see 17 different areas of which our church lives in. Every one of these areas from Roswell to Alpharetta to Canton to Cumming, that all the 17 areas represented about where our church lives, that we would see someone come to Christ this next calendar year, you could say, and not only come to Christ, but demonstrate it by following the Lord in baptism. Can God do something like that? Yes, he can. And he wants us to give ourselves to that mission this next year. One of the ways that I'd like to encourage you to keep this in the forefront of your mind is by joining me to pray for this every week, that God would help us to reach those 17 areas. One time when we can come together corporately is on Sunday mornings, and I'll invite you, uh, Lord willing, every Sunday morning at about 9 o'clock. So this is before our life stage time. I'll meet you in our library, which is in this little hallway, and we'll begin Sunday morning just praying, God, would you help us to see those areas reached? And let me tell you, if you end up seeing someone come to Christ through your engagement, please share that with us. We would love to be able to just check off these areas and say, look what God did. And so would you join me consistently to pray to that end? It has been exciting for me, even over the last week, to hear how some of you are working to that end, doing sometimes Bible studies with a neighbor or a friend. And that is so exciting to hear. And the question I have for you individually is what are you doing to get the gospel out? If you don't have an answer for that right now, that you would come up with an answer. This morning, what I'd like to do is I'd like to start a new series and see how one local church, one ancient local church, began to strive together for the sake of the gospel. 
And so I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to the epistle to the Philippians. Of course, that is in your New Testament. Your Old Testament shouted the need. Your New Testament shouts, shouts the supply. And that supply is Jesus Christ. And right in the midst of that New Testament is an epistle that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Philippi. The title of this series, as you'll see behind me, is Together for the Gospel. That we as a church would be united to get the gospel to our community. And really that's what you find played out in the midst of this letter to the Philippians. This letter, of course, was written by the Apostle Paul to this local church. And I'd like to begin by reading the first five verses of this beautiful letter. Listen to what it says in the word of the Lord. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. What's the most powerful force that you have ever encountered? Some of you may have seen a tornado. Some of you had possibly endured a hurricane. Maybe it's a wildfire. Maybe the most powerful force has been a big piece of machinery that you drove or you saw. Maybe it's a nuclear power plant. You'd say, that is the most powerful force I've seen. Or many of you have seen pictures of the atomic bomb. And you think of, that's the most powerful thing our earth has ever seen. Let me tell you that I believe the most powerful force that this earth has ever seen is none other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, the Apostle Paul said to another church, the church in Rome, he said this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, and listen to what he says, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Why do I say that the gospel is the most powerful thing? Well, let me tell you, it can change a person's life initially, but it can also change a person's life eternally. You know, changing people is probably the most difficult business you could ever imagine. Why? Because people are stubborn. People get set in their ways. And to see a life, a person, totally transformed and changed is a massive force. But let me tell you that God is in the business of changing people through the gospel. Does the gospel of Jesus still have the power to radically change people's lives? Does it have the ability to change Atlanta and Roswell and Alpharetta and Cumming? I submit to you it does. In our text this morning, Paul begins to write to a church to thank them for being a part of this gospel business. Now, how did they get to this point where they were, you could say, an engine for the gospel? Today, I'd like for you in these opening five verses to see 
the incredible power of the gospel. I want you to see what the gospel can do in a community and lives. I want you to see how it was at work then and how it's at work now. And this morning we're going to see three simple points. I'll give them to you right here at the beginning. We're going to see the gospel's power to change an individual's life. We're going to see the gospel's power to change an entire community. And we are going to see the gospel's power to enrich your life. So this morning, let's begin by looking at this. Let's see how the gospel has the power to change an individual's life. The book of Philippians opens like most ancient letters. It opens with a from. We open letters with a to. But it opens with a from. Who's it from? And then it goes to to, who it's going to. And then a greeting. Most ancient letters, Greco-Roman letters, were written in that particular way. Well, here at the beginning of this book, Paul identifies himself along with kind of a cohort, Timothy, as the from. Listen to what it says. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, right here in the opening word of this book, we see exhibit number one of the explosive power of the gospel. In fact, I want you to consider this. The gospel can change a bigoted, religiously misinformed zealot into a humble, welcoming servant of all people. Rewind the years from when this was written in Paul's life. What do we know about Paul? Well, he was a religiously trained man in the most prestigious schools of Judaism. Like his pharisaical friends, the other Jews, they didn't have much to do with those who were non-Jews. In fact, you remember the story when Jesus was traveling through Samaria and he runs into the woman at the well and she is incredibly surprised that he as a Jewish rabbi is talking to her, a half-Jew, a Samaritan. It blows her mind. But here, in the book of Philippians, right away, I want you to take notice that Paul includes Timothy in the opening line as his co-author. Did you know that Timothy was a half-Jew? In fact, in the next chapter, in Philippians 2, Paul identifies Timothy as his son in the faith. What in the world? This pharisaical Jew is now riding with the half-Jew, who he calls his son, and he's riding to a church, the church at Philippi, filled with half-Jews and non-Jews, Gentiles, and he's riding to them, expressing his deep care and love and thankfulness for them. What happened to this guy, Paul? Well, many of you know his former name was Saul, named after the first king, no doubt, of Israel. He changed his, or his name changed in many ways. He accepted it as Paul, which meant little. I'm no longer big. 
in reference to big to myself. What had happened? Well, he calls himself in that first verse, he says, I am a servant of Jesus Christ. Paul came to a correct conclusion about Jesus Christ. In fact, he calls Jesus in that first verse a servant of Christ Jesus. You say, what's that word Christ? The word Christ is literally the Messiah. What were all the Jews looking for? They were looking for the Messiah. And he had come to know Jesus as not simply a religious rabbi. He came to know Jesus as the promised Messiah. That's why he calls himself a servant of Christ Jesus. Why? Because he had seen the risen Christ. And many of you know the story in Acts chapter 9 and where the Apostle Paul had lived his life persecuting the church or the way. And then one day on his road, on the road to Damascus, he runs into the risen Christ who appears to him and his life is radically changed. It resulted in him now no longer being, you could say, master. He calls himself a servant. Literally, the word servant there is this, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. In fact, as we read a few moments ago in Acts chapter 16, we know that Paul was also a Roman citizen. And as a Roman citizen, he had so many different, you could say, uh, privileges. But here, a Roman citizen is saying something astronomically impossible. He's calling himself a what? A slave. To add to that, he's writing from a prison in which he has given himself to sharing the message of Jesus to the world of Gentiles. That opening word of the book of Philippians demonstrates to us the incredible power of the gospel. Look also on what the gospel did in his life. Go down to verse 3 and 4 of our text. It says this, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with what? With joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Did you notice that the gospel had transformed this man into being a thankful man? Did you catch that he was also a praying man now? He's praying all the time. And finally, it also transformed him into being a joyful man. And so going back to how I introduced Paul, the gospel transforms bigoted, religiously misinformed zealots into becoming welcoming, thankful, praying, joyful servants. Lebanon Baptist Church, you and I live in a culture where racial and social injustices abound. We live in a community and a world in which our country is in, in many ways like a seething volcano and it erupts every once in a while. And we see it played out on the television screen and many of us have seen it played right in the middle of our city of Atlanta. What is the most powerful radically changing reform program that this world and this nation has to offer. You know what it is? It's the gospel. This world needs the gospel. It changes people from the inside out. 
What Roswell needs, what Atlanta needs, is the gospel of Jesus that transformed Paul from being a racist in many ways into being a man who loved the world and gave himself for it. If you are a skeptic on all this, let me, let, me, let me tell you to investigate the incredible power and the liberating power of the gospel. I mean, you study one of the greatest social injustices, slavery, and you read about in England with the abolition movement and what drove that particular thing to eliminate slavery in the British Empire. What drove that? It was Christian men and women whose lives were transformed by the gospel. It is Christianity that liberated. Not only that, but also elevated the role of women in society. Have you been changed by the gospel? Paul was a man changed by it. If there is still racism in your life, if there is no desire for prayer, if there is no thankfulness in you, if there is no joy, if you don't care about uniting the world under the name of Jesus, has your life been changed by the gospel? Because the gospel radically changes people. And Paul is an example of that. And he's writing to the church that had been transformed by it. It changed him from a master to a servant. So Paul had, and he writes, with his son in the faith. And that's the first truth. The gospel has the power, and it does change individual, individuals' lives. And you see it in the opening verse. But now the second truth. We also see that the gospel's power is able to change a community. And we see that played out in, the, in this area of Philippi. So Paul writes to this gathering of believers in Philippi. In fact, look at the second part of verse 1. It says this, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who were at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Just so you are aware, the city of Philippi is located in the north part of ancient Greece. Okay, many of you know, if you look at the map, Greece is kind of connected by an isthmus. That's where Corinth was. The upper part of Greece is called Macedonia. The lower part is called Achaia. And Macedonia is where this city of Philippi was located. It was named after a man by the name of Philip of Macedon. He's important because he, of course, is the father of one of the most prominent men in history, and that's Alexander the Great. This particular city was visited by Paul on his second missionary journey. We read about it in Acts chapter 16. It had become a Roman colony a number of decades before, almost a century before Paul arrived on the scene. And it became a Roman colony because there was a great battle. Many of you are familiar with the battle between, of course, Octavian, uh, Octavius, or Octavian, and uh, Mark Anthony and Brutus and Cassius, there was this great battle in the Valley of Philippi. And of course, Mark Anthony won. And as a result, he made a city that was located in that area a colony. And because this colony was 
specially blessed by the emperor, it was known and it was given great privileges. The Roman citizens didn't have to pay taxes, and so it was a, a very strategic and important city. In fact, it also sat on the Via Ignatius, which is the famous road that was connecting the world at this particular time. I've had the privilege of visiting this particular city and it, its excavations, and it's just mystifying. It's incredible to see what the gospel did and to see some of the places where they believe some of these things occurred. Notice that Paul writes to all. Did you catch that? He says to all the saints. Paul is writing this letter to the entire Philippi church community. Of course, this is kind of a subtle initial emphasis that Paul's going to have on his call for unity. There are going to be a lot of alls that are going to happen all through this book because he wants them all together. Notice he calls them saints. Formally, he would have called these people that he was writing, he would have called them what? Heathens. Gentiles. But he calls them saints. That word saints means they are set apart ones or they are holy ones. Now, just so you are aware, this, uh, this term is often mistaken by many in our particular day. Many people think when they think of the word saint, they think of certain people that the Catholic Church has uh, set apart as saints, like St. Patrick. However, this is a term that New Testament writers use for all true followers of Jesus. And as he writes them, notice he says they are saints, and the reason they're saints is because of this. Saints in Christ Jesus. They had a new position. The gospel has the power to declare and to transform a sinner, an individual sinner, and make him into a saint. This is where a sinner, like you and me, is justified and credited with Jesus Christ's perfect righteousness to cover their own unrighteousness. Even though, as you look at Pastor Brian today, even though I am positionally and I am a practicing sinner. The Bible says that I am a saint. I am a holy one. I have been set apart. And the reason for that is because I, a number of years ago, placed my faith in Jesus Christ. And when I placed my faith in Jesus Christ, at that very moment, I was credited with the righteousness of God. It was, it was downloaded fully. I have the righteousness of Christ as an atonement, as a covering. And even though I am practically a sinner, I am positionally in Christ, I am a saint. And that's why Paul could say, you kind of have two locations, you Philippians. You are in Christ positionally, but you also live in Philippi. Those of you who are in this room, you have different locations where you live. If you're a follower of Jesus and you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are positionally in Christ. That's your position. But not only that, you are positionally in Cumming or in Roswell or in Canton or in Hickory Flat. And he says, you are in Christ and you are in Philippi. 
So he's writing to them, telling them and reiterating who they are in Christ. Now, how had God changed this particular community in Philippi? Well, Scott read to you Acts chapter 16. And it's interesting, did you catch that last little phrase in verse 5? Whereas he's writing to them and thanking them and telling them how he prayed for them, he ends by saying this, verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until when? Until now. Isn't it nice when the Bible not only gives a statement about the first day, but it gives you all the history behind it. Acts 16 tells us about when the gospel came in the first day to this city at Philippi. And in Acts chapter 16, you heard read before you the rescue of three individuals in the city. You heard how the gospel penetrated three levels of the social structure. Did you catch that? First of all, it rescued an upper-class businesswoman, a woman by the name of Lydia, who was a seller of purple. Not only did it impact her, but it also impacted a low-class slave girl who was basically collateral that everyone looked down upon. And she had been, as we know, healed by Paul. And then we read of a middle-class jailer, a government worker, who was watching the prison. And his whole family, along with Lydia's family, are transformed by the gospel. And so as Paul's writing this letter to the Philippians, many years later, no doubt he's thinking about them, and he's writing to some of them who are still, no doubt, located in this church. Notice how the gospel had changed their lives. It changed the way they lived it in Philippi. In fact, you'll notice that evidently they formed a community. They were gathering together because he's writing to this community. Not only that, it also shows that they developed, you could say, leadership. It refers to the overseers. You say, what are the overseers? That's one of the phrases the Bible uses for pastors. They oversee the church. So this church had matured in such a way that they had raised up leadership. But not only that, another office within the local church is deacons. And you read about the instigation of deacons in Acts chapter 6. And this church had already matured in such a way that they had deacons and pastors. And he's referring to the whole community, but he also refers specifically to them. And we'll see reasons why he may have referred to them later on in this particular book. But you read about how they've been organized, they're worshiping together, and how they're serving one another because literally a deacon is a servant. And so there's people who are just, you could say, utilizing their gifts to serve one another. But notice also that Paul thanks God for something that they had been doing, and it was this, for their partnership in the gospel from the first day until then. From the day the gospel penetrated this city with Lydia coming to Christ until now, many, many years later, what Paul says is this, you got involved in the gospel from that first day and you have not stopped till this very day. 
That term partnership in verse 5 is a, a term, I don't normally share literal Greek words, but it's one that probably some of you are familiar with. It's the word koinonia. It's the idea of you have fellowshiped in the gospel. You have shared in it. You have become partakers in it. They had labored continually in the partnership or the fellowship of getting the gospel to their city and ultimately to the world. Many of you have read Tolkien's works, The Hobbit, and then you read of The Lord of the Rings, and one of the first books is called The Fellowship of the Ring. And of course, that word fellowship, it's, it's all of these people who are united around trying to get the ring to Mordor and work toward this, and, they, and they, they're willing to die in order to get that accomplished. And in the same way, what Paul is writing to this church and saying, to them, it says, from the very first day, you have partnered for the sake of the gospel to get it to the world. In fact, we will find that this church have sent their own people, and they have sent financial gifts and other gifts to Paul as he's in prison giving the gospel to the world. You'd say, what made the difference in this church's, in this community's life? What made the difference was the gospel of Jesus Christ. Someone had come to that city and started proclaiming Jesus, and Jesus radically changed them. Once again, did you notice that the gospel, when it's proclaimed, all types of people get saved? And I'll tell you, Lebanon Baptist Church, if every one of you gave yourself to start sharing the gospel in your context, let me tell you, every aspect of the social strata of Roswell I believe, would be impacted. If you just shared Christ, we would see Lydia's. We would see the low class, the middle class, every area. And what would happen is this, it would be united. They would come together in communities. God can do that if the gospel is proclaimed. What was the evidence of their conversion? This is what happened. They got involved in the family business from that point on. They got busy about making disciples. There are numbers of you who maybe when you got married, you got married into a, a family business. Maybe your spouse, they, they, they were already a part of some family business with their parents. And when you married in, you just kind of, that was your job now. Some of you have your own business and your kids are going to be involved in it because that's your business and it's just part of being part of the family. I remember when I was a kid, my parents, they started to do the business of craft shows. And as, the, as a young kid, I can still remember my mom used to make pine cone baskets and decorate them. And I remember as a kid, we'd drive through and we'd see some pine trees and there'd be a bunch of pine cones laying in the yard and she says, run and get those. Because I was a Peterson, I was a part of the family business. And for the next number of years, just growing up as part of that household, we went to craft shows, we did all the different various things of trying to sell our wares to the world. Why? Because I was a Peterson. When you became a follower of Jesus, one of the evidences of being a part of the family is you become part of the family business. And the family business is this, is to make disciples of Jesus. That's what he's called you to do. So if you're not engaged in it, there's a problem. 
God's people tell others about Jesus. They make disciples of Jesus. And they did it. This church did it from the first day until now. Have you gone back to your own, you could say, monkey business? Or your risky business? Or are you involved in the family business of making disciples? The church needs you and I to be involved. I'll say this, those of you who are at home, and right now you can't get here because of COVID, being careful, whether you're here or whether you're online, has the gospel stopped? No, you still need to get the gospel out. Paul was writing this, I believe, from a Roman prison. And even though he's incarcerated, which a lot of us have felt over the last year and a half, sometimes incarcerated, What does he do? He still is involved in the gospel work. What can you do? Just because we had 2020 doesn't mean the Great Commission stops. Even more, we ought to give ourselves to it. And you need to use your imagination. You need to use your prayers. And you need to use your mouth to proclaim Christ in whatever setting you may be in. Because that's what God's called us to do. Share. So see the gospel's radical power in individuals' lives like Paul and in whole communities like the city of Philippi. And the last thing I want you to see is this. I want you to see the gospel's power to enrich your life. And I close with one verse. I've kind of talked to you about verses, you could say, one and verses three, four, and five, but I haven't really talked to you about verse two. Notice right in the middle of all this, Paul shares with them this verse. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as I mentioned to you at the outset of this message, the Roman letters normally began with a from and then a to and then a greeting. Paul follows that pattern with a from and a to But then he radically changes the greeting. Normally it was often, let's say, an emperor writing uh, one of his officers. He would often say those, and then he would just give a quick greetings from this particular area. But Paul does something different. He says, of course, Paul and Timothy to the Philippians, but then what he does is he sends them to colossal gospel gifts that they have because of Christ. And it's these two. He sends them grace and he sends them peace. Grace, that little phrase, that little greeting would become Paul's new chosen greeting. And not only his greeting, but it would also become his farewell at the end of letters. It stood out to those who began to read his letters. People often define grace as unmerited favor. It's where you and I, because uh, we're sinners, we don't deserve anything, but God in his grace shed his grace upon us through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. But grace is more than simply unmerited favor, so much more. Not simply unmerited, it was despite what we did merit due to our sin. You know what you and I merited? Our life of sin merited death, eternity, in a place called hell. 
But Paul calls them and sends them grace. And where did it come to him from? He says, grace to you and peace. And it all came through the Father, God the Father, and through Jesus Christ. You didn't deserve this. I was thinking about this yesterday. Many of you uh, enjoy college football. This is one of the, my favorite times of the year because college football is going on. And, of course, uh, fall baseball is about to be upon us. But yesterday in the middle of the afternoon when my team lost, I had some family members who began to text me uh, whose team won. And, of course, bragging about their team's win and different things like that. And I I remember as, as this was all happening, I thought this. Their win, they did nothing to merit that win themselves. Nothing. When my team wins, okay, let's just transform. When my team wins, I did nothing to merit that win. Nothing at all. In fact, it's just grace to me if my team wins. In fact, I didn't do anything to help my team. In fact, I ate and drank unhealthy stuff while they were playing. (laughs) When my team wins, it's grace. I didn't do anything for it. Let me tell you, you and I, we do nothing to merit what God has done for us. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is what? It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And as Paul writes this verse, he says, grace to you. You did not deserve this. But not only does he give you that colossal gift, but he also gives you the colossal gift of peace. You know, peace is when two who were at hostility are brought near. It is that Old Testament term, you could say, that reflects it. It's that term shalom. It's the binding of things back together. It is what all Israel was looking. When is shalom going to happen? Well, shalom was inaugurated in the coming of Jesus Christ. And grace was poured out to this planet. Peace came to him, and it all came through the Father, through the work of the Son. And of course, it was applied to you through the work of the Holy Spirit. And what Paul does right at the initiation of this book is he tells them about who's writing. He he sends them greeting, and that greeting is this. You have been given grace, and you have been given peace. And they are yours, and they come to you through the person of Jesus Christ. And here at the outset of this book, we see the power of the gospel. Do you have these two colossal gifts? Do you have have the grace given to you? Do you have this peace? It's only through the person of Jesus Christ. So this morning, as you and I begin to investigate Paul's call for the Philippians to be together for the gospel... We see why they could do this, and it was this. It was the power of the gospel. And that power is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. I close by showing you this. Did you notice that in the first three, word, three, first three verses of this book of Philippians, there's someone who's highlighted. 
at the end of verse 1, it says, or middle of verse 1, Jesus Christ. To the saints, in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 2, grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The main character of the book of Philippians and the main character of all the Bible and the one who has all the power is the person of Jesus Christ. And what you're going to find is this. As you come to know him and you submit your life to him and you grow in your understanding of him, the power is there and you can experience it. But you must come to know that person and it's Jesus. Once you do, you need to allow him and submit your life to him and allow him to change you by the power of the gospel. May God help us to see this power manifested through the book of Ephesians. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of this text. Lord, we thank you that you are in the midst of transforming individuals. You're in the midst of transforming communities. And you are in the midst of sending grace and peace to your people. Father, we thank you that that becomes all accessible to us through your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, I ask that over the next number of weeks, as we begin to examine how that gospel penetrated this Philippian church, that you would grow us in our understanding of Jesus. And Lord, that you would motivate us to be a church that gives itself for the sake of the gospel. Now may the Lord increase and abound in love for one another and for all, so that he may establish your hearts blameless and holiness before our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And all the people of the Lord said, Amen. Have a good week. Thank you for listening to Treasuring Scripture. It's our desire that every Christian treasure God's Word in their heart. To follow our podcast, please hit the subscribe button. If you're interested in learning more about our church, please visit LebanonBaptist.org.